welcome to another episode of The Shift Change, our podcast about all things nursing. We are your hosts, Claire and Michelle. This month, we are going to be focusing on trauma-informed practice. Join us in a conversation with this month's guest, Karen Castro, to learn about what can help and what can hinder integrating it into our nursing care. Before we delve into the discussion, let me give you a little background on trauma-informed practice. It's a term that gets used a lot, but what does it mean to be trauma-informed? Becoming trauma-informed means recognizing that people often have many different types of trauma in their lives, and that this is the lens from which we must approach all of our nursing care. It's an important part of healthcare, and it's essential to nursing practice. It's not something that just happens. It must be supported by policies and practice that place the patient at the center of the care. A trauma-informed approach emphasizes physical, psychological, and emotional safety for everyone and creates opportunities for trauma survivors to rebuild a sense of control, safety, and empowerment. It's about empowering the patient, seeing their strengths, and embracing the idea that the patient is the center of healthcare. This month, our guest Karen Castro shares her nursing experiences in the diverse care areas of maternity care and in mental health and adolescent inpatient. We touch on the connection between patient empowerment and trauma-informed care, highlighting issues that arise from systemic issues in the system, like stigma of people who have mental health and substance use issues. We also touch on the challenge of using a trauma-informed lens in care areas that utilize coercive practice. Hi guys, welcome to The Shift Change. This is Karen speaking with Claire and Michelle. I've worked in youth concurrent disorders for a couple of years now. Before that, I worked in forensic mental health and mood disorders. I also have some experience with adult neuropsych and mood disorders and labor and delivery before that. So a little bit of random experience here. So today we're going to be talking about trauma-informed practice. And maybe I thought we would just get started by me asking a question. So the first question that I'm going to pose is, what do you think of when you hear the term trauma-informed practice? For me, the first thing that shows up when I think of trauma-informed practice is the inpatient concurrent disorders unit that the three of us worked on, because I think, for me, that was the closest that I've ever come to working on a team that was really trauma-informed. But it also struck me, while that was the closest I've ever come to working in a place where it really was trauma-informed, there was also so much more room for growth and so much more room for looking at what we were doing. And when I think of trauma-informed practice, I think of that constant learning and curiosity being a foundation. I don't think trauma-informed practice is ever something that you are like, oh, tick, I've got this. Yeah, I, I agree. I think trauma-informed practice is definitely a process. And I think also just to add to that, a big part of it too is to eliminate that power dynamics that often exist in a healthcare setting. You know, we're working with vulnerable populations um, most of the time. And to be in this place where there's doctors and nurses that can often be an intimidating presence to these people, you know, that's already a lot for them to deal with. And for me, trauma-informed practice needs to be more uh, conscious of that and to just kind of meet them at the same level. So I became a nurse in 2008. Probably around that time is when the term trauma-informed practice started to become more well-known and started to become more integrated into the healthcare system and especially into mental health care. With the understanding people that are coming into contact with the mental health system have had a history of trauma and that's something that we need to consider when we're providing care. We hear the term 
and it, sometimes it seems like a buzzword, like trauma-informed practice, and we're being trauma-informed, but I think it takes some effort to understand what that really means and how that can translate into care, because knowing and understanding that somebody has experienced trauma doesn't necessarily mean that you're all of a sudden trauma-informed, and now you're going to be approaching care from a different way just because you know about the principles of trauma-informed practice. So I think that's something to consider as well and something to think about as well. That there has to be deliberate actions that we take in order to actually be trauma-informed in our practice. Yeah, I think that's such an important thing to distinguish that just getting education out there, putting posters up isn't enough to really say that you're working from a trauma-informed place. And I think that's the shared workplace um, that where the three of us met was the closest to seeing it put into practice because I think before that it was something that I knew about in theory but it's so different and it can get quite complex and a lot of ethical stuff can show up because when you're working from a trauma-informed place and Karen I think your point was so important about being aware of power dynamics and there can be a lot of comfort and safety for the healthcare team if you see yourself as the expert and you think that you're going to tell someone what to do and they either do it or don't. And if they don't do it, it means that they don't want care. And if they don't want care, then they're not welcome in the service. I think that mentality, I've seen it so much more in the health authority than the opposite. And I think that just essentially saying that there is such a difference between saying that you're trauma-informed versus actually being able to ask the people that you're working with, like the clients and patients that you're working with, how's this going for you? Yeah. I, th I think that's such an important consideration to make. And I agree, the unit that we worked on, that the Adolescent Concurrent Disorder Unit, in my experience, that was, it was the closest I think that I've ever worked clinically to translating trauma-informed practice into direct care. And I think the difference there was that the clinical staff were really aware or really self-reflective of the practices that we were doing, um, the policies that we were doing, how we were providing care, and the histories and the backgrounds of the patients that we were serving to actually think about how do those things intersect, how do those things overlap, and are is what we're doing helpful? Is what we're doing considering the histories and the trauma that the patients that we're caring for have experienced, or is it harmful and are we causing more trauma? Um, and then I think we also had the space to be able to ask questions about how can we change practice and how can we change policy to become more trauma-informed instead of viewing healthcare as some sort of static entity that it doesn't change. It, it has to. Uh, as more research and more knowledge happens and is generated about trauma-informed practice, inevitably the healthcare system will change and inevitably, hopefully, care areas like mental health and the emergency room and different services will change to include different practices to help people that are living with trauma and that have had traumatic histories instead of excluding them. In terms of uh, the workplace setting, um, the youth concurrent workplace setting that we worked in, I think a lot of what made it successful was also that everyone had a sense of uh, perspective. Like tra trauma-informed care really requires this perspective that you need to be so aware of the complex context that the client uh, has. You know, sometimes it's really challenging to implement this during times where you know, a client can be escalated, but any behavior is their way of communicating. 
you know, sometimes you work in a violent environment and, you know, to just get a perspective where you understand the context or context of why that's happening instead of reacting to the situation, you know, it's very hard because our, our natural impulse is just to react to the situation, but in a trauma-informed lens, you know, you have to be aware that, you know, this, this client might actually have a reason to know to communicate that way. I would agree, and one of the things <laughs> that stood out to me the most working on that team that we shared was I felt so strongly that I had so much to learn from all of the other, all of my other colleagues there, and that everyone came, like, working from a trauma-informed place wasn't an option, or it wasn't that something that a few people did because they wanted to. I felt like there was just that base understanding so you could already start deeply into that conversation. And when I went to a colleague to problem solve with them about, you know, how can we best support this youth? I felt like it was just a given that they would be asking questions like, okay, well, how has the rest of their day been? Is there, do you want me to jump in and offer, I can take them outside for a walk. I, we can go do art. On the team that we worked on, the staff all really wanted to know their story. And as you were saying, Karen, it amazed me how consistently across my colleagues in that setting, the question was, what's going on for this youth in this moment? And how can we meet them in a place of mutual respect? How can we make sure that they have a voice, make sure that they have options, make sure that they feel like they have some agency, even in the context of what was quite a there were a lot of power dynamics because inherently it was a locked unit. And when you have a healthcare provider who has the power to say whether or not you get to go on pass, whether or not you, when you get your medications, what medications you get, it, there's no way that we can say that there wasn't power differentials. I think it's so important to acknowledge that. But within that context, being able to acknowledge that it, I didn't think that I knew the answer of what that youth should be doing. I didn't think that I had the answers of how to live a good life and how they could, you know, be quote-unquote successful. I thought that I had some things that I could offer them and some information that I could offer them, but I think sometimes it can be a trap when healthcare providers think, I know what that person should be doing, and if they would just do this, then their life would be better, because we don't actually know that. We don't know what their life is going to look like if they choose path A or path B. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have to agree on that one, uh, Claire. And well, one word, one word comes to mind um, when you're talking about those, like informing the, the client, um, making sure that they have choices, you know. Mm-hmm. To me, that, that, that's like empowerment, and empowerment is really a heavy term for me, mm-hmm. just because, you know, it's very complex in how to empower a, a client. To me, yeah, and empowerment is really a sensitive balance of, you know, uh, educating the client and making sure that they have choices throughout their care. I think a lot of the times when they're in a healthcare setting, a lot of those choices get taken away. Yeah, in the healthcare setting, when somebody, especially if somebody's in the hospital setting, they're like something wrong is happening. Some healthcare issue is happening. Some something has happened such that they need to be in the hospital setting at that point. It is really important to understand that there is that power differential, and it's really important to offer people choices, but also to understand that people have the right to live at risk and that people are autonomous decision makers. Even if they're certified under the Mental Health Act, they're still 
they're certified under the Mental Health Act because of risk associated with maybe harming themselves or others. But they're still autonomous decision makers and being able to decide who they're going to have relationships with and whether or not they want to engage with the, the team. Those are decisions that they're still empowered to make. And I think that's a really important piece of trauma-informed practice that we're working with the client or the patient in a collaborative way to kind of mitigate the traumatic effects of the healthcare system. I guess this is the systemic issues that are embedded in the healthcare system related to coercive practice. And I think it's kind of important for us to be real about that as well, especially um, in areas of healthcare like the mental health system where a lot of people are brought into hospital care because they've been certified under the Mental Health Act. They've been brought into the system involuntarily, not because they've chosen to engage with mental health care. So it's important to be real about which pieces of the healthcare system are actually oppressive and which ones are coercive and be real about how we might actually be causing trauma and then make efforts to mitigate those things and to look at those things in a different way in order to change the way that services are delivered and to change the way that care is delivered, to change the way that teams come together to interact with the patients, to make it the least traumatic experience possible for a situation that we know is going to be traumatic. I think that's such an important thing, your point about acknowledging that it is it has a high likelihood to be oppressive and coercive and acknowledging that um, that those power differentials exist. I know myself when I've navigated the healthcare system as a patient, I, even with my training as a nurse and my comfort in the healthcare system, I feel that nervousness when I am, even when I go see my family doctor who I love, I often will like write down what my question is before I go in because I'll get in and kind of be like, oh, well, she's in a rush and I forget half of what I'm going to say. And then I leave and think, oh God, I'm going to have to make another appointment. Or luckily it's not at my family doctor, but at walk-in clinics I've been to, you walk in and there's a sign on the door that says one issue per appointment. And it's these things that are trying to push people further and further into smaller and smaller boxes. And then if they do, if that person does feel cornered, if they feel disrespected inherently because of how the system is structured and they react to that, then I think sometimes it can be this quick labeling a patient as manipulative, labeling them as non-compliant. And these words get thrown around. And I think that as soon as I hear someone say, oh, that person's trying to manipulate the system, they're drug seeking, they don't really want treatment. My question is, what are we as a team doing wrong that's doing a disservice to this person. Like thinking about it's a public healthcare system. People ought to be welcomed into the system in whatever state with whatever needs they have. It shouldn't be that they have to do a bunch of work outside the healthcare system so that they're quote unquote ready to get our service or they're deserving of our service. And I think sometimes that narrative can be played out in a really toxic way in the healthcare system. Yeah, like I think that's such a weird thing when people when someone has to deserve the service or like when they're not doing xyz or following rule abc then they're not necessarily denied care but they're not welcomed into care or it adds barriers to access which is doesn't make any sense in a public healthcare system where we should be trying to break down barriers and welcome everyone into the into the system because everybody deserves access to healthcare
and it doesn't make any sense sometimes when we build up those barriers and then we at the same time are calling the service trauma-informed which clearly it's not at that point if you're making it very difficult for someone to access service and then it's true that sometimes people do get labeled things or people get stereotyped especially people known histories of mental health issues or that use substances like we label them in a certain way and then we approach it from the perspective of like what's wrong with you and why aren't you why aren't you doing all the things that you need to do in order to successfully access the service instead of looking at it from the perspective of you know what's happened to you and what are the barriers that are preventing you from accessing the service that I can help you overcome in order for you to better engage in the healthcare system so that I can better serve you because it like, it's this weird thing that doesn't make sense to me sometimes where our jobs exist to help people are dependent on people accessing service and ensuring that people have equal equitable access it's such a curious thing when we make the barriers so high or make the service so exclusive sometimes that nobody's actually accessing it and then we flip it around and say like well I guess guess nobody needed that service but we've made it so like the exclusion criteria so great that it's not really accessible to anyone at that point and I would say then it's not very trauma-informed at all and we have to be real about asking those questions and saying like well what what do we do now like how can we change this service in order to make it better for the people that we were hoping to provide service to. And that brings up the question, we've touched on it already, but how do you guys do trauma-informed practice? To me, how I integrate trauma-informed practice into my work is really to just have that lens where I don't want to put myself in a position that I think I know more about their health than they do, because I think that they have unique experiences. You know, valuing their experiences is really a, a big thing in trauma-informed uh, care for me. I don't want to think that I know what's best for them just because I had this like education you know that I know all about their meds and everything like that I, I kind of want to be more in a place where I can be a resource to them because um, more than anything I always tell my patients like I talk, when I talk to my uh, to our clients um, I always tell them you know more about your health than anyone in healthcare will ever know you know and, and that's in a way how I want to empower anyone I come into contact with just because I want to be conscious of you know just I don't want to create this uh, distrust in the healthcare system that can often be, you know, formed by that power dynamic. And just because, you know, from my background, it's really interesting to have worked with both um, adolescents, you know, at the at an adolescent stage, and like to work with adults, uh, adults as well. Just because you kind of see the impact of how our care affects these patients, working with adolescents. You know, I, I really value my time with them just because I know down the road, however way I interact with them will affect how much they're willing to access healthcare. You know, it could either be, you know, we could either be a, a source of uh, trust and like resources or we could be a source of like, you know, feeling disempowered and judged and, you know, all that harm that could possibly come their way. So to me, that's what I'm aware of, um, just seeing both sides. Oh, I think that's so important too. Like thinking about how when people are young, that's really setting up the perception and the understanding that they have of the healthcare system. So if we if we're not mindful and cognizant of how we're going to engage adolescents and younger people with the healthcare system, and if we're not cognizant of setting up that relationship and valuing 
the relationship, then it can really destroy the trust and really burn down those bridges for them to access or want to access healthcare later in their life. And I think that's so important too in me doing trauma-informed practice in adolescent mental health, like really being focused on building that trust and not being quick to use interventions that I found from, in my opinion, we were so quick to use in adult mental health. Interventions like forced injection medication or seclusion rooms or taking away people's passes to, to go outside to leave the unit on their own. It, I think we're really thoughtful about not doing that with in adolescent mental health, which uh, like logically it doesn't make any sense. We should be just as thoughtful with adults as well. But I think with younger patients, there's a lot more deliberate thought that gets put into how my actions as a nurse today are going to affect their relationship with the healthcare system tomorrow or a year from now or 10 years from now. And I think that is how, personally, I that's a perspective that I take when I'm doing trauma-informed practice. Yeah, I couldn't agree with both of you more. I think it's so... I find it so interesting that the three of us worked in this same place and I wonder how much of this came was like co-created by our team as we were working together and how much of it each of us came into that space with because it's amazing just to sit with two other nurses and have this shared sense and this shared language because I don't think it's necessarily that common out there in the world and I think some of the some of the things, mm-hmm. some of the ways that I implemented trauma-informed practice and continue in my work is even the small practical things like if I had to give someone an injection or like an injection medication that wasn't forced um, or if I was mm-hmm. doing their vital signs, asking them what their preference was. Would you prefer to do this um, in more of an open area or would you prefer to go into your room? I have to give you these three different medications. Which one would you prefer to take first, second, or third? And it's not about overwhelming someone with choice, but just letting them know that if they want to stop at any point, if they want to take a break, if they have questions, if they don't understand what's happening, that is, it's their right to ask those questions. It's their right as a human to say, what are you doing to me and why? as opposed to being in the middle of some medical procedure and looking up and seeing that person crying or pulling away or saying afterwards that they have no idea what just happened. And I think that's something that can happen quite a bit in the healthcare system, that someone, as you guys talked about, that transition from someone's first experiences with the healthcare system to once they're well-versed, if they've spent time in the healthcare system, that sometimes people just get used to the idea of a stranger coming in and poking and prodding at their body or giving them a medication that they don't understand what it's for. And that sense of being powerless just becomes an expected part of the healthcare interaction. And I think, as you guys were saying, there are those opportunities to consciously break down that pattern and to just, hopefully, my intention and the work that I do is always to give the patient or client that I'm working with the sense that I see them as a person. I see them as someone that existed and had a whole life before my interaction with them and they're going to have a whole life after my interaction with them. And so sometimes things like offering someone a cup of tea, saying I can bring you food if you're 
you know, feeling nervous or scared, come let me know and we can chat. Like, I'm here for you. It's not just to give out medications and I'm not just waiting for you to behave and follow my directions. And I think that that in itself can be a scary invitation for a young person because they're not used to having someone say, what do you want? And so I think just giving space for whatever that person needs in that moment, giving space for that as much as possible. I think it's important to to make the space to be able to question policies and practice that doesn't make any sense or that seems to be trauma-causing rather than trauma-informed and not to come from a place like to be okay with asking questions like, why do we do it that way? This doesn't seem to align with trauma-informed practice. Is there something that we can do to change this? When it comes to rules that seem arbitrary, to be okay with asking the question, well, why does that rule exist? How does that fit into the values of the system and the care that we're trying to deliver now? Is this something that someone thought of in 1995? And at that time, when those values were prevalent in the system, is that just a carryover from an outdated time when we're doing outdated practices? Or is this something that is actually beneficial for the patient and is helpful in terms of their healthcare outcomes? I think it's important to also be brave, I guess, um, and be able to ask those questions and not be caught up into this um, mentality of like, I'm, I'm doing these rules because they're the rules and because somebody said this is how to do it and because it's written down someplace and it's the official policy, I'm just going to do it. And I guess I'm going to have to trust that it's the best thing for the patient, even though it doesn't feel right with me morally or ethically in this moment. Yeah, I'd have to agree, Michelle, like, because if anything, we're the ones, like, nurses and anyone working in the front lines are the ones that interact with the patients the most. You know, we get to see the effects of these policies and how outdated they could be, like, yeah, and it's important for healthcare to evolve as well, because, you know, you're right, um, so some of these policies were made maybe, like, 10 years ago, you know, it's important to, like, observe, like, their most the most current evidence now and apply that into these policies. And I think also to get feedback from the people that are, Claire, you mentioned this, actually asking the people that we're providing service to. So do you have any feedback for me? How is this going? Did you find this helpful? Are there things that we can do to provide better service to you? Are there things that we can do to make you feel safer or to make you feel more, more like an active participant in your care? So the next question that we're going to focus on is what does trauma-informed practice look like in different care areas? And so I've primarily practiced in mental health, inpatient and outpatient. I think trauma-informed practice with adolescent in adolescent mental health looks a little bit different than um, how it's translated in adult mental health because I think we're a little bit more aware of the lasting effects that we can cause if we're being if we're not being patient-centered with adolescents, whereas with adults, especially adults that have chronic mental illness or substance use issues that have been in and out of the inpatient system a lot. I think a lot of staff become morally distressed in the adult inpatient mental health care system. Um, and you see people come through a lot, sometimes perceptions get distorted where you s start to feel like nobody ever gets better and these, the, these people keep coming back and they're just, they're not doing what we told them they should do in order to stay well. And it starts to change your perception of reality instead of focusing on the, like this, the larger systemic issues that are preventing their success to focus on the individual and the deficiencies in the individual, which is unfortunate that that happens at the adult level. So I think 
sometimes it, it does become difficult to deliver trauma-informed practice in the inpatient mental health system. In contrast, in, in community services, like we're really relying on the relationships that we build with the patient otherwise, or the client, otherwise they're not even gonna, they're not gonna show up to their next appointment, they're not gonna trust you as a clinician, they're not gonna wanna see you, um, and they're not gonna see any value in the service that, that you're delivering. So I think there is really a lot of focus in building the relationship and collaborating with the patient in community-based services. And in that way, they are a lot more trauma-informed in that way um, and focused on empowering the client and focused on their strengths and building on them. Whereas I think in the inpatient system, unfortunately, a lot of times we get focused on someone's deficits and the problems that someone has and we focus on what was going wrong and how that led to them being in the inpatient system, almost like it's some sort of punishment that they're on the inpatient system right now. Instead of viewing the situation as the patient just needing a lot more support and maybe they're maybe they need more help and that's why they're they're in the inpatient system. Not that they didn't follow XYZ, they didn't follow the care plan as we wrote it out for them and that's why they ended up back in the inpatient system. That's the difference between inpatient and outpatient and adult and adolescent, in my opinion. I couldn't agree more about those differences that exist and how important the relationship is in community because there's so much control in the hospital and I think that that can be quite toxic often, but it also can be, the hospital can be that place to provide intensive services. But because in the community you are waiting for someone to come back for their next appointment or to welcome you into their home and so you need that relationship and that's when I um, my first job as a nurse was working as a child and youth public health nurse and I feel so grateful for the training um, that I got in that context specifically to work in youth clinic I remember I did a course on how to do pap tests and pelvic exams and breast exams and the course was maybe 25% about the actual skill of doing it and how to find the cervix and how to use a speculum and at least 75% it was a three-day very intensive course at least 75% was talking about trauma histories talking about how to enter that space and things to say and not say to ensure that the patient or client knows that they can stop the exam at any point to ensure that they know what's happening. And it really surprised me. I, so I worked in youth clinic for about two years and just got so used to it as part of my practice and all the nurses that I worked with that when we were going to do a pelvic exam, we would explain what we were going to do beforehand. I would always um, step out of the room so that the person could get changed. I would let them know that they could stop the exam at any point or ask questions. And then I moved into doing um, sexual and reproductive health, including PAPS for an adult population. And it was so interesting, basically just how compliant adults were used, like the expectation that they would have to be just very compliant and like a, just basically not human during those exams. I would be explaining, I would say, you can stop the exam at any point, And they would, some of them would be shocked. And some people had never, not that I was that special, like I was trained by people who were such experts in this and it was a culture in the youth clinic that I worked in that this was an expectation that you come from this place. But that wasn't the norm for these adult clients that I would have and they would be like taking their pants off in the room and trying to rush because they thought I was rushed and I would just be like, 
no, like we have time. It's not my goal to do this. Like quite, that's very, that's a very personal exam to do a pap test for someone and the expectation that you're going to do it in five minutes and the person's not going to ask any questions. Like that's their body. I just, but that's, that was the grounding of where I started with trauma-informed practice. The woman who um, designed the course and taught it that was important for her, that balance. That didn't happen by accident. And I just think, again, this culture starts with developing that shared level and shared expectation across all of the nurses in Vancouver Coastal Health Youth Clinic had that training. We were starting out from that place as opposed to doing a two-hour thing on the actual skill and leaving it up to everyone how to talk about the, how to talk about the exam, how to talk about the body. Because people... Mm-hmm. aren't necessarily your first instinct isn't necessarily your best in terms of what language to use or what works for you isn't what works for other people and people need to there needs to be that education component to confirm that you're starting from that baseline as opposed to assuming that because I learned so much from it that's so interesting though because I wonder what happens to those youth that they're providing service to when they turn 19 or they start accessing the adult system and the training apparently might be different for nurses that work with adult patients and so the the care might be different and how that might be for those youth if they are used to a certain way if they're used to a trauma-informed way and then suddenly they're thrust into a system that's concerned about efficiency and doing things the fastest to serve most people possible and it might not necessarily be as trauma-informed. Yeah, and I think a terrible example of what this can look like when it's not done thoughtfully is there's so much history, um, really really terrible and unfortunate, but there's so much history around pelvic exams and how people would learn to do them. In like medical students in the past would learn in the when they were in their operating room surgical rotation that doesn't seem ethical. No. Oh, no. And they, when patients were unconscious. Yeah. And patients wouldn't have consented. They no. would be in for a surgery that had nothing to do with their genital health. But the idea was, and it comes back to this, if we think that as healthcare providers, we have ownership or the right to someone's body, and you think, well, they're unconscious, they don't know, like... Obviously, these policies and practices Mm -hmm. have been overturned, but I think this is the risk if we don't come from a thoughtful place of recognizing that that is a full human that you're working with. It can really cause trauma. Yeah, this question kind of just brings me back to how I started my nursing career. I started off working in a maternity, a complex maternity setting. The focus on working with and part of moms who also have concurrent mental health and substance use issues. Um, in that kind of setting, I really like working with the staff because uh, how we implemented trauma-informed care in that setting was basically taking it to its limits. You know, sometimes patients would be coming in and coming right off the streets, uh, withdrawing. Um, we're helping them manage through their withdrawal in their own way. Also, no, but also balancing that with the fact that we know that this patient could potentially sign themselves out at any point. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, we've had patients in the middle of the night say, okay, I'm going to go 
take myself out of the uh, out of um, care uh, AMA meaning you know against medical advice uh, we just provided them education about the risk that that would mean um, they acknowledged it signed themselves off and you know ha they had our contact and most of the time patients would come back the next day right? and it's almost better to have that trust than forcing them to stay in our care right because they're gonna do what they're gonna do and we can't we, they have the right to you know as Michelle was saying they have the right to live at risk our job was just to let them know that this service was available to them to just help them provide it help provide the best possible outcome for the mom and baby after that um, I kind of took an interest in you know I always had an interest in the mature like maturity and substance use but I was uh, I then progressed to working in a maternity setting mm -hmm. so just working with moms and babies and in that setting, I find that, you know, that's really the place where I realized that we had a lot to grow in terms of trauma-informed care in just any medical setting. You know, in, in this maternity setting, I noticed that when we had the off, like, off chance that we admitted a mom with substance use issues, sometimes there was a gap in training for the nurses that was working with me. And when I was on shift, that I would get assigned these patients because I only I was the only one that had experience working with moms, you know, like moms who are going through withdrawal and they're like a maternity patient. So in that area, I kind of learned that, you know, I wanted to make a difference, you know, in, in just general medical areas. It'd be great to educate nurses and doctors more about trauma-informed care because that principle alone doesn't just belong in you know substance use it doesn't just belong in community or mental health I think it should be integrated throughout all of like the medical system after my maternity rotation I then worked with adults um, I did notice some uh, variances in how trauma-informed care was put into practice I do notice that adults were expected to be more compliant which was a little bit you know, disheartening to me. It's not a place where I want to work necessarily, but at, at the same time, I wanted to look at it in a way that this could be an area that could have drastic changes and more evolution towards what it should be. And then in youth concurrent, we already talked about what that looked like, oh, yeah. so I'll leave it at that. <laughs> Yeah, Karen, I really think you've touched on some um, important points there. And it, more than anything, this conversation strikes me as how much more we have to talk about. And I wonder if we can come together again, uh, maybe for the next episode or down the road, to talk about do we cause trauma, something we've touched on already in this episode, how, why, and then the ethical perspectives and the moral distress that this topic brings up for people. Anything to add before we sign off? These are pretty big conversations and these are pretty big topics. The, tr the topic of trauma-informed practice is pretty, it's complex. Trauma-informed practice is complex and I think, Karen, you make a really important point that it's not just something that belongs in mental health and substance use. It belongs throughout healthcare and I think it's important that we have a bigger conversation and touch on some more pieces to think about the complexities of this. Anything to add, Karen? Um, no, I think it'd be interesting to see what we have to say for the next episode. That's the episode for the shift change. And yeah. We'll see you the next time on the next shift change. Bye-bye. Yeah. Take care. Bye. <laughs>
and paternalistic policies and procedures can get in the way of using a trauma-informed approach, but as nurses, we need to make it a high priority. Thanks again for listening to another episode of the Shift Change Podcast. If you like this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues. If you want to learn more about this episode or to share any feedback with us, please visit our website at www.theshiftchange.ca. Our website has blog posts, behind-the-scenes photos, and links to our Instagram and Twitter accounts. Drop us a line because we would love to hear from you.